0: Well, good morning. morning. Happy Easter. Easter. (laughs) My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, I want to kick things off here with a little ancient call and response. It's actually an ancient church greeting. uh, And so let's see if you guys know what I'm even talking about. Um, So, if I were to say something like, He is risen, you would then say, I love it. All right, here we go. Let's try it. You ready? He is risen. 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 I love it. And the resurrection changes everything. Absolutely everything. And that's what we're celebrating this morning. And honestly, the truth is that that's what we celebrate every Sunday. Like that's literally what we're all are about. This is who we are. For us, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Amen? I mean, we are actually risen church. It's literally our name, right? and, and it's intentional and, it, and it's intentionally in the past tense. We talked about this on Good Friday if you were here. Like we aren't rising church, right? We are risen church because he is risen. He has risen, right and so it's who we are. It's our identity because of what he's already done, not because of something that we're attempting to or trying to do. It's all about what he has already done. We are risen in Christ, even spiritually seated with him in heavenly places, according to Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. Things apparently just got spiritual even with my microphone. now. I don't know what that was. a will echo. That's all right. We're resonating on the halls of heaven right now. So, but it, like Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, look with me, it says, this is what it says, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated Past tense, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's not just something we're looking forward to, it's something we have already experienced because of what he's already done. Something we can know even now. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable, say immeasurable. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now that's worth celebrating. Amen? I mean, that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. That's what we're about. And so the way that we celebrate, though, isn't just through an event. I want you to see this, because this is extremely important. See, church isn't just an event that you attend. It's a people you belong with. That's very different often from the way society perceives church. The church is a gospel family that we partner with. It's a people who have received the grace of God in Christ. We've experienced it and we've been changed by it. Even given an entirely new identity because of it. This all comes through the Resurrection. So right up front here, I want to both welcome you and I want to clarify that the purpose of our church isn't just to put on an event where you come and listen to a few songs and sit through some dudes talking to you, okay? That's not what church is all about. In fact, Risen Church exists to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other, our city, and beyond. So when we gather together, what we're doing is pointing one another to Jesus, what we're doing is celebrating jesus and we're reminding each other of who jesus actually is and what he's done for us and the immeasurable riches of the grace that we have in him every time we meet on sunday and throughout the week and in life this is a constant reminder this is what, what we do as the people of God, and so we point each other to his perfect grace that's available and sufficient for every moment and every season because he has risen. And because he's risen, we are a risen church, and we've been commissioned together by Jesus into a purpose that's way bigger than ourselves. It's way bigger than anything else. So this morning, I want to say, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. And I also want to encourage you to continue to consistently gather with us, because the celebration does not stop when the service ends. Like, in fact, if you are truly interested in what Risen Church is like, and you're, then you're, I want you to know you're only catching a glimpse of it at just this Sunday morning service, because we're way more than just a service. And we want you to get to know the immeasurable riches of God's grace in and through our church, this expression of a local body of believers. And we want to get to know you and what God's doing in and through you. And so, in fact, we recently updated our website. I don't know if you've seen it, risenchurchvb.com. You're welcome to go there. We, we just did a few updates to it. And so um, we did that because we want that to be a catalyst or tool to help us get to know you even more and to allow you to get to know us even more. And so on our website, what you can see is there's an encouragement to, uh, quote, try five. Say try five. try five. And that's an invitation to come for five consecutive weeks in a row, both on Sunday and throughout the week uh, at our community groups. And again, we'd love to get to know you and walk with you on your journey with Jesus, no matter where you're at on that journey, whether you're just trying to figure out who Jesus is, or if you're actually at a point where you're looking to officially partner and join with us in Christ here at Risen Church. Either way, I want you to know that you're welcome here. And so this morning, I want you to see why we are, in fact, all about Jesus, and why his resurrection is the ultimate good news. So for the past couple of months, we've actually been walking through a series through the book of John uh, in our series called Sharing Life Like Christ. And so in this series, we've been looking at specific interactions that Jesus has with specific people throughout the book of John. And so we've seen his character on display as he interacts with people and and through the questions that he's asking them and the patience that he demonstrates with them. And so we've seen these, these things that he values We see the way that he navigates their insecurities and their egos and their misdirections and how he draws people into the grace and truth of who God truly is. And so as we take in how he interacted with them then, we also get to take in how he interacts with us now. Because the same way Jesus navigated their insecurities and their egos and their misdirections then is the same way that he navigates our insecurities and our egos and our misdirections even today. And he does interact with us today because we serve a living and interactive God. Amen? And so the point of this entire series has been about experiencing the true Jesus for who he truly is. Not how this world presents him, not even how we think he might be or even what, the, the way that we think he should be, but how he truly is as his word presents him and what he's truly like. And then sharing the life that we experience in Christ with each other, our city, and beyond. But in order to share life with others like Christ, which we've all been called to do, you first have to share life in Christ. Like you can't be a conduit to others as something that you haven't experienced yourself. Right? So it's all about the overflow. Like rivers of living water in and through you. It's all about beholding Jesus and experiencing Jesus, being loved by Jesus and fully satisfied in him alone. And so here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, if this is just like a drinking from a fire hydrant this morning of information and all kinds of stuff, I want you to get this, all right? The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. It changes your marriage and the way you view money and the way you view your career and relationships and life goals and the way you think about both your successes and your failures, it changes the way you deal with pride and shame and anxiety and eternity. Should you accept it, the resurrection changes absolutely everything. And so this Easter morning, I want to show you why and how through an interaction between the risen Christ and a woman named Mary Magdalene. Now, there is at least 2,387 things that the resurrection changes, right? At least. But uh, this morning, we're only going to have time to hone in on three, Okay? So, three things the resurrection changes, and we'll also use these three points as sort of like a roadmap for the rest of our time as we walk through this interaction between the risen Christ and Mary Magdalene, unless you want to go through all 2,387. <laughs> yes? That's probably uh, shortcutting it, honestly. If, but, but, but we're going to hone in on three um, as we walk through this interaction in John 20, verse 1 through 18. So, the first thing as our roadmap the resurrection changes the way we cry. And then the second is the resurrection changes our desires. And the third is the resurrection changes our identity and status before God. So turn with me to John 20, and let's walk through verse 1 through 18. So verse 1, here we go. It says this, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So now I want you to let this vision settle into your hearts and your minds here, okay? Like it's still dark outside at this point. Now, And whenever the book of John calls attention to the dark, he's actually using it as a way of conveying confusion. Like it's a way of saying that Mary Magdalene is still in the dark. She's not quite seeing things clearly yet, okay? Now if you were here with us on Good Friday, you know that Mary Magdalene was also there at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified, and she was there with a handful of people who loved him the most on this earth at that time. They were all confused by what they witnessed, and their hearts were torn in two by it all. Like it took place on Friday, and, and, and if you've ever experienced true grief or mourning, then you know how it can linger. Like you know how the tears seem to be ever-present just behind your eyelids, just ready to well up, like how death can sort of shroud your spirit in heavy darkness and weigh your eyelids down with both tears and, and shadow. In this world, we experience grief all too often, and this was no doubt Mary Magdalene's experience even as the entire city surrounding them were celebrating Passover by feasting on the sacrificial lamb. But all who love Jesus would have been weeping bitterly over him as the ultimate lamb of God. As the Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah 12.10 put it, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So for a man, all the promise and hope and expectation they connected to Jesus has all just been cut down. But for Mary Magdalene, it's much deeper even. For the disciples, for for humanity, we often, we look to what we can get from him. But Mary Magdalene here just misses him. You see, while so many had sort of like this transactional relationship with Jesus that came with a lot of expectations for what he could offer them, Mary Magdalene and the beloved disciple John and those who were at the foot of the cross, they just wanted to be with him. They just wanted to cling to him. They wanted to be where he was. But now he's gone. And so at the first possible moment, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, even before the sun came up, just to be where he was, just to weep over him and to pray, even in the darkness. so as she approached the tomb, she noticed that the stone had been rolled away. And in her darkened understanding, she assumes that someone had taken his body. Verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's how John refers to himself. He's the author of this. I love that, by the way, that he is the one whom Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And so now I always thought that this was John letting us know that he was faster than Peter. I like that's really kind of how I've always understood that. And I think it's probably true, but as I've thought about it more and more, I'm not sure that that's the only reason he outran Peter here. Remember, Peter has reason to hesitate. Peter's the one who denied Christ three times while John stood through the entire crucifixion by his side. This may be a sign that Peter's shame has caused him to shrink back a bit, or it could just be that John's faster. (laughs) Either way, John gets there first, right? So verse five, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. So John gets there first, and he sees that this massive stone's been rolled away, and he stops to process. Now, the entry to the tomb would have been only actually a couple of feet tall, so it's not this, like, huge seven-foot-tall entryway that most of our cartoons depict, Right? It's actually about, the entry would have been about like that. And so that's why he has to stoop down to look in. And when he does, he sees the linen clothes that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had wrapped the body of Christ in, lying there. And so John's so shocked that he stops to process outside of the tomb. Right? Maybe he stands up and he's like, what did I just see? But when Peter shows up, probably out of breath at this point, He just sort of barrels right in, like, which is pretty much in line with what we know about Peter's personality, right? Like, he just is kind of this brash, like, go for it. Like, I kind of envision him just running and tucking and rolling in, right? But he suddenly finds himself in this very sacred scenario. The linen clothes that Nicodemus and Joseph, or the linen cloths that Nicodemus and Joseph of Aramthea had wrapped Jesus in on Good Friday were now lying at one end of the place where they had laid Jesus, and his face cloth is now lying at the other end where his head would have been. And so they're folded neatly and intentionally arranged, like this was not the work of grave robbers. Verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So up until now, they've basically been in the dark. But verse 8 here says that when the other disciple, being John, reaches the tomb, he saw and he believed he goes in and he sees and he believes like again he had until now been in the dark but the sun has risen and the light is beginning to shine even literally like the only way they would have been able to see inside that dark tomb was as if was if the sun had risen also this tomb would have been facing east toward the rising sun in fact, most ancient tombs and graves are often facing the east, where the sun rises. It's a sign that people are looking forward to a new day. And this day was definitely a new day. Not only was it the first day of the week, but in many ways it was symbolic of the first day of a new creation. Up until this point, the book of John's actually highlighted for us seven miracles that point to Jesus as the Messiah and the creator king of a new creation. And each of those seven miracles, like the seven days of creation, culminate here with the eighth and ultimate miracle of Christ's resurrection. It's the ultimate symbol of the eighth day, a new day, pointing to the new creation. And so the lights are coming on in John and Peter, just like they may be coming on in some of your hearts and minds right now. they're realizing that the sun has indeed risen and it is a new day verse 10 then the disciples went back to their homes but mary stood weeping outside the tomb so she's apparently followed them back to the tomb after initially running to get them right maybe they outpaced him and so she came in after them But in her distress, she didn't follow them into the tomb at first. And in in their own amazement, Peter and John probably didn't even notice Mary weeping outside the tomb as they just go back in their amazement to tell the other disciples what they've seen. And so they pass by her as she continues to grieve there by herself. Look back at verse 11. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Remember when she approached the first time, she was in the dark and all she could see was the stone rolled away it would have been too dark for her to see inside that darkened tomb right but now the light is shining and she's beginning to see verse 12 and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet i don't miss this image okay it's extremely intentional like remember the white linens and, and the face cloth, remember where they're positioned. They're intentionally positioned in a way that designates where his head was and where the rest of his body was, okay? And now we're presented with two angels who are standing, or I'm sorry, seated in those same places, at the head and foot where Jesus had lain. So what Mary Magdalene is viewing here is the ultimate fulfillment of what the Old Testament referred to, referred to as the mercy seat, that was located in the most holy place of the tabernacle and the temple. Remember the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament? Anybody ever seen Indiana Jones? Right? Here's a picture of what it would have looked like. This is not from Indiana Jones. But this is a picture of what it would have looked like, how it's described in the Old Testament. And the top of it was actually called the mercy seat. And on either side, it had these angels or cherubim who were facing each other as they sort of covered the mercy seat, which was the meeting place between people and the holy manifest presence of God. Exodus 25, verse 22. God there says, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat is what resided behind the veil in the most holy place or the Holy of Holies in the temple. It was the place of God's manifest presence upon the earth. And so when Jesus died on the cross in Matthew 27, 51, it tells us that, that seventy feet, that 70-foot-tall curtain that was also three feet wide was split in two from top to bottom. The thing that divided the manifest presence of God from his people was torn in two at the cross, at the death of, or during the death of, uh, or the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. So now here we have the fulfillment of what the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat was always pointing to. Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, which means God with us it's all about jesus hebrews 10 19 through 20 says this therefore brother since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh the mercy seat was where they would have laid his flesh Now, of course, Mary Magdalene hasn't connected all those dots yet, right? At this point, she's just taking it all in as she's simply seeking Jesus. What she doesn't yet realize, though, is that because of the resurrection, he's more accessible than she could have ever hoped or imagined. Look at verse 13. They said to her, these angels are speaking to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Now, notice, we're told these are angels. Like these, in verse 12, we're, it's clear, and, and, and it's even more clear from the other gospel accounts, that she knows they're angels. But she seems to just kind of take it all in stride. Like, you know, like, hey, angels. Yeah, like, glad you're here. Like, you're glorious. I get it. They took Jesus. Right? Seeking Jesus is her one single-minded desire. It's all she cares about. It's all that matters to her. Find Jesus and be with Jesus. He's not even alive. I just got to be near his body. I need to be with him. That's it. Outside of that, she's inconsolable. Angel or no angel. She's on a mission to find her Lord. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus. Jesus standing but she did not know that it was jesus jesus said to her woman why are you weeping And so we we begin here with the first interaction that the risen christ has with any human and it's with mary magdalene and his first words to her come in the form of a question just like his first words to his first disciples came in the form of a question back in john chapter one there he asked what are you seeking? Here, his first question, though, is different. But it is still a question that was designed for her to examine herself and to take inventory of her own heart. And the question he asks her is, why are you weeping? So the weight of this question can't be overstated. Like the one who's just defeated sin, death, and the grave itself is standing before her. Revelation 21, 4-5 through 5, speaks of King Jesus saying, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And here Jesus, King Jesus, the risen Lord, asks the most relevant, most compassionate, most helpful, and most clarifying question he could ask in this moment why are you weeping? Which brings us to the first thing the resurrection changes, which is the way we cry. The resurrection changes the way we cry, the way we weep, the way we mourn. She's weeping because she feels hopeless and alone. She feels lost in the dark. She's weeping because the finality of death is suffocating. She's weeping because her heart is broken and her hope is lost. She's weeping because she thinks she'll never see her Lord again and she thinks his body's been taken, which only amplifies the depth of that pain and searing loss. And yet, though she doesn't understand yet, the one she speaks with is the very one she weeps for. Jesus is asking the question so that she can herself come to grips with her own soul and what's going on. So she can identify the source of her despair so that when she realizes it's really him, she can fully rejoice in that new reality and not be bogged down by emotions that aren't even relevant. So her tears will be immediately transformed into tears of joy. Because not only has death been defeated, but the presence of her Savior and King is with her. And all the fullness of joy is hers forevermore. Death itself has been defeated, for he turns graves into gardens and he turns mourning dancing first thessalonians 4 13 through 14 says this and it's all a result of the resurrection but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep or or those who have died that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope for since we believe that jesus died and rose again even so through jesus god will bring with him those who have fallen asleep So this doesn't mean we don't mourn or or, or grieve loss, right? But it does change the way we do it. Because for those who trust in Jesus, not even death can lead to despair because our hope is alive. Which leads me to the next thing, the resurrection changes. The resurrection changes our desires. What are we after? What do you seek Look back at verse 15. Jesus asks her, why are you weeping? And then immediately after that, he asks, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Now again, notice this question that Jesus asks is the same question, or or almost exact same question that he asks the first disciples in John chapter 1. And as we've seen throughout the book of John, the thing that separates the disciples from the crowds is what or whom they're seeking. Like the disciples desire Jesus, they seek Jesus, rather than just what Jesus can offer. The disciple is interested in going where Jesus goes and doing what Jesus asks, but the disciple simply, because the disciple simply wants to be with Jesus, right? Jeremiah 29, 13 says this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so it's clear that Mary Magdalene is seeking Jesus with all of her heart here. You see, the crowd just wants the miracle or the gift, but doesn't really care about the giver. The crowd's only interested in the event or the entertainment, not the one that the event points to. The crowd just wants Jesus for what he can offer them. There's no real relational intimacy there. It's just a transactional interaction. These are people that associate with Jesus but don't truly love him. In order to go from being a part of the crowd to being a disciple of Jesus, it requires new desires, new affections. But here we see the opposite in Mary Magdalene. Like all she wants, again, is to be with her Jesus. Like he is the desire of her heart and she's seeking him with all of her heart. Even though in this moment she still doesn't get it all. Notice she assumes he's the gardener which, by the way, not insignificant. Remember, they're standing in a garden here, okay? And remember, a woman in the garden, a woman in a garden, is where this whole thing got started way back in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. That's where everything got flipped upside down as Eve disobeyed God and bit the forbidden apple. And then the first Adam, Adam followed suit, and did the same this is why jesus had to come and die in the first place to redeem us and so here this woman now stands in a garden speaking to the ultimate creator and ultimate cultivator himself in so many ways jesus really is the true gardener and here's where we're even pointed to the new eden as he asks whom are you seeking see everyone has a sort of divine desire for something more every one of us we're created for it it's just in us whether we suppress it or not it's there and it comes out in really strange ways sometimes like there's something deeper even than our own abilities to process or articulate it affects our motives and our ambitions and it can even drive our sense of purpose to achieve or attain or find our worth and value or even to despair and isolate it's like we have this notion that if we can just get that job or that spouse, things will be okay. If we can just show ourselves to be successful, then we'll be accepted, loved, and even maybe admired. If we can just reach a certain financial status, then we'll be secure. Or if we can just get through this difficult season, then I can rest. There's this the gut-level craving for what many call the good life, right? But what does the good life even look like? In many ways, it's an ethereal idea of the reality of the garden. Maybe it's even for people attached to certain politicians sometimes, or or the economy. Or maybe it's when your kids get to a certain age, but then, of course, when that happens, you look back when they were younger and you think of those as the good old days. Right? Like this morning, I want you to see that those desires are ultimately only fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, all of our insecurities and our idolatries and those intrinsic motivations are deeply connected to the state of our relationship with God. Our need for affirmation, love, acceptance, approval, comfort, and security goes way deeper than we often want to admit or even imagine. And it's why we strive so hard for certain accomplishments. It's why we get so angry or often hopeless when those things are threatened or even lost. It's why we're tempted to compromise in ways we never thought possible when those desires come within reach or when they get threatened. You see, we were designed for continual intimacy with God, but an idol is basically defined in Scripture as anything you desire or seek more than you seek God. Something you want more than him It's something or someone you replace God with, and then they or that becomes your sort of functional savior. They're even often good God-designed things that were originally given to you by God for your good, but they're designed to point us to Him, not replace Him. And so they become idols when we make even those good things ultimate things, and that's why Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of heaven and His righteousness, and then trust that all else will be added to you. It's a way of delivering us from our own idolatries because when we seek first anything or anyone else in in one way or another we give ourselves over as slaves to those things or that person and then we live in a constant state of thirst with no quench because we're drinking from cisterns that can hold no true living water ever hungry yet never satisfied it's why people tend to do such foolish things in order to attain things like money Like, they cheat, they rob, they exploit others or totally compromise their own values, then just dismiss it as simply, you know, how this world works and just, you got to do what you got to do. But for what? Status? Acceptance? Security? Approval? Maybe then you'll be loved, but by who? Earthly parents? Yourself? Society? God? Remember, money is in itself not bad. Right? 1 Timothy 6 doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's a priority issue. Or what about marriage and family, right? Like, just like money, this is good in and of itself. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But even this amazingly good God-given gift can easily go from a catalyst of his love to an ultimate source of your idolatry. Like when you look to marriage and family as your ultimate source of status and acceptance and security and approval and love, you'll do anything to get it, even if that means marrying someone you know God doesn't want you to because, well, they seem to fulfill those desires, and so you compromise. You may start by dating someone who doesn't even know Jesus, and even though God blatantly tells you not to do that, and you know it's probably not a good idea, you seek that sense of acceptance and affirmation so bad that you want it more than you even want him or trust that he can provide those things you desire in and of himself. So you seek it elsewhere. So you compromise. And by doing so, you reject the only one who can actually accept and affirm you in the first place. And you put a distance between you and him. And then when that spouse inevitably falls short of the godlike ideal that you place on them, instead of running to God, the next step is to try to manipulate that spouse or that person or that thing into being God. Which, of course, never works, right? And only ends in resentment. Maybe then you blame them for not being good enough or even cheat because all, you know, you're really after is what you deserve. That's the way the world tells us, right? You deserve better. Maybe instead you just resign to live in a bitter state of hostility, demonizing the one you once idolized and blaming God for the entire scenario. Guys, these are just a couple of examples of what happens when we look to the created to be what only the creator can be. And I want to tell you something. If you're feeling like, man... Stepping on my toes. I'm the only one in here that has the struggle. No, you're not. We all struggle with these things, every one of us. But when you taste of the goodness of God, when you taste the grace of God, it causes you to turn from it and recognize that's not who I am and it's not where I have to remain. Because my security is in His grace and His love and His acceptance and His affirmation. And I want you to see this morning that in one way or another, this is the state of humanity. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, attempting to drink from one counterfeit fountain or another. But this is the good news. Like, these these cycles can and have been broken, and your circumstance can be redeemed. Like, divorce isn't necessarily the answer. His grace is. Like, finding all these things in the risen Christ and the grace that he offers is the only real way to put everything else in its rightful place. You see, Easter isn't just about the miraculous event that took place 2,000 years ago. It's about what that miraculous event means for you today. So, what it means for your marriage and relationships and career and your children's children's children today. You see, God doesn't just say, stop doing dumb things, He doesn't just say, stop sinning or else. He meets us where we are and he provides all the affirmation, acceptance, love, and security that we've been seeking in other things in himself. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserved to die because he loved you that much. I should say, loves you that much. And he conquered death in the grave through the resurrection by paving the way to eternal life and deeply intimate access with God the Father. And it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die. We're not just sitting back going, oh, well, I'm just going to endure all of this until one day when I kick the bucket and go meet him face to face. He is saying, I've given you access now. The moment you place your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you turn from all that other counterfeit nonsense and you say, God, I need you. I don't have what it takes, but I believe you do. That's the moment eternal life begins. And he fills you with his spirit that's closer to you than your own skin, even deep within you. And he begins to change you. He doesn't just tell us to stop drinking from the counterfeit. He gives us living water straight from the source. And it's the source you were designed for. His spirit literally changes us from the inside out. See, Mary Magdalene has tasted and seen his goodness. She's already come to the realization that Jesus is the only one who is truly all satisfying. Like Luke 8 tells us that Jesus delivered her from seven demons. Like This is a woman who knew the depths of sin and the strength of its grip. She knows from experience what darkness and despair is like. And she also knows the power of Christ's deliverance. She knows that in him there is fullness of life, more abundant life. She knows that without him she's doomed. She's feasted at the table of the enemy and she's drank from those counterfeit fountains. And she knows that in Christ alone her hope is found. Her alone, or or he alone, is her all in all. She's received completely new desires and they're all ultimately for and found in Christ alone. And so Mary Magdalene is just oozing with the heart of a true disciple. She loves him. She seeks him and only him. Even when all seems lost. You see, in many ways, Mary Magdalene is a picture of the church and the bride of Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that she was married to Jesus in any earthly sense. Get that Gnostic nonsense out of here. Because she's no more like, you need to understand she's no more the bride of christ than i am and yet i am and so are you if you are a part of his church then you are indeed the bride of christ as well it's a covenantal language of intimacy See, we were all like mary magdalene once prostitutes running to false lovers but now redemption is offered along with true satisfaction in christ alone See, this is what Jesus provides through the cross and resurrection, and it changes everything. Like, this is how the whore of Babylon becomes the bride of Christ. Like, this is how the demonized Mary Magdalene is delivered, redeemed, and given access to the unconditional, unrelenting, never-ending love of God that is found only in Jesus Christ. This is how the wayward slave becomes a beloved son of the Father. This This is what the resurrection provides. Sin and death are defeated. The veil of separation torn in two. The stone rolled back, and the grave emptied and the father's calling you by name to receive your identity as his beloved sons and his daughters and he invites you to enter deeper into his holy presence which leads me to the final point the resurrection changes our identity and status before god back to verse 16 Like, remember, at this point, she still assumes that he's the gardener, right? And she's just asking where they've taken Jesus. And in a moment of pure affection, the king of kings and the name of above all names speaks her name in a way that only her savior and king could. And she recognizes his voice. As Jesus said earlier, my sheep. They know my voice. They hear my voice when I call their name. And he said to her, verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. Whew. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, often when Aramaic, see, this gets me every time. When Aramaic is used in the Gospels, it's an effort to communicate familiarity or intimacy. Like when Jesus refers to God the Father as Abba, right? It's an intimate word for daddy. It's being communicated. That's why it says Abba. It doesn't just say daddy. Or when Jesus raised the 12-year-old girl from the dead by tenderly speaking to her in Aramaic and saying, Talitha kume, which means little lamb arise. There's an intimacy there. There's a familiarity there. And so here, Mary Magdalene uses that personal and affectionate way that she addressed her Savior King in her own heart language, and she calls him Raboni. And so you can just imagine her falling into his arms as her tears of sorrow were suddenly changed into expressed joy. And I also love that Jesus doesn't just burst forth here in a cloud of glory, like dun-da-da-da, <laughs> right? It's not what he does. Like, he could have done that. But that's not how he chose to reveal himself to her. And it's often not how he chooses to reveal himself to us. We're all looking for that dun 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 na. And yet he chose to speak her name. I bet it was barely a whisper. He chose to identify himself as the one who's always been there and has always been speaking. And isn't that how he reveals himself to us even today? Like, isn't it true that we realize he's been speaking to us all along? We didn't just realize that it was him. We just didn't see, we didn't know that it was him the whole time, that he'd been speaking. Like, see, when we surrender to Christ as Lord and Savior, it's not like surrendering to a stranger. It's like finally coming home to rest. That's what it's like when you receive Christ. It's like the veil is lifted and you see that the one you've always been after is actually Jesus. That which has always seemed out of reach is available to you in Christ. And all else is just exposed as a counterfeit. Often people are waiting for some big dramatic display before they receive Christ. But more often than not, Jesus calls us in the stillness of an intimate whisper that he places on your heart. What is he speaking to you this morning? What is he saying? What is he whispering? I believe the Holy Spirit is whispering to each one of you this morning. Whether you're a mature believer or whether you've never even prayed to receive him as Lord and Savior, I truly believe that he is whispering to you this morning. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Like, this is what she wants to do. She wants to cling to him, right? Like, why is he saying don't cling? Isn't that what this whole thing is about? Like, we, we get to cling to him? But this is even better news. She doesn't understand it yet, but there's even more. And more that we now have access to. In other words, what he's telling her is that there's more to come. There's even a closeness that will be soon available to her that goes even beyond the relationship she currently knows. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus says it's better for him to go to the Father so that the Spirit may come. As J.D. Greer put it in his book, Jesus Continued, great book, you should read it. He says this, the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Now that seems cra- Like if you had your choice between like Jesus in the flesh right here beside you, or what we have access to now, you'd probably be like, well, I'd rather have Jesus in the flesh beside But that's not what Jesus himself said. He said, it's better that I go that the spirit may come. Now, at his return, we'll get both. That's a both and. He's in us, inside us, beside us, around us, all over. That's a whole other sermon. Stick around. We'll preach it. But what we see here is that this is the intimate access that we now have as a result of the resurrection, and it changes everything. So Jesus tells Mary Magdalene to go to my brothers and say to them, so we're back to verse 17, Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Guys, don't miss this. This is so good. John 15, verse 15. Jesus tells his disciples that he doesn't call them servants or slaves, but that they are his friends. See, he was elevating their identity and position before God. He even says, the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. And so at this point in John, what he's saying here is that to, like, to be a friend to the Son of God, that's a big deal, right? Like you're not just one of the hired hands. You're like a friend of the family. That's a huge step up, Right? Honestly, I think this is where most Christians tend to leave it. This is how they view their relationship with God, kind of like a friend of the family. But after the resurrection, Jesus takes it to a whole another level, even a, le- a level that's even hard to grasp, honestly. Even for myself, I'm like, what? How is this even possible? Jesus, the Son of God, calls his disciples brothers. That's intentional. And just in case you think I'm thinking into this, right? Or maybe it's like, well, I can't really mean that. He then says, his father is now your father. My father is your father. What? He said, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus Christ has here invited us into his father-son relationship with God the Father. And yes, that is as radical as it sounds. See, so this isn't exactly, I'm sorry, this is exactly what Jesus came to do, right? He, he came to pay for the debt of our sin and crush the enemy and graft us into the family of God as sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. This is what it's about. But not only are you not, no longer slaves or hired hands, and neither are you just like a friend of the family of God. You've been invited to receive full sonship with the Father as heirs of the kingdom of heaven, embraced into a local covenant family of God. Because of the resurrection, God is not your taskmaster. He's your intimate, unconditionally loving daddy, should you accept Christ as your savior and king. Will you heed the Spirit's whispering call to embrace what he's offered you fully in Christ? Will you embrace that or will you feel more comfortable at a distance and say, I'd rather just be a friend of the family? Or maybe you think you still have something to earn like a slave. You see, salvation is a part of it. But guys, there's so much more. There's so much more. I want to close with an illustration that I think was originally from A.W. Tozer. I can't honestly remember. <laughs> um, but it's an illustration that hits home for me, especially as a father of three young kids and because I'm a hugger. <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine having, you know, a cold, distant relationship with my kids. Right? It's hard for me to feel like, it, imagine, that, like even when they get sick sometimes, they got a stomach bug, it's like killing me. I'm just like, I want to hug you, but I don't want to throw up for the rest of my life. <laughs> right? And I know that those relationships exist between fathers and children. It breaks my heart. Because whenever I see my kids, the first thing I want to do is embrace them and pick them up and tell them I love them and hug them and squeeze them and, 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 and call them by name. And let them know that they're mine. And I love them. And I always will. So the thing is that they know mentally that they are my children. Even though they're not here with me. Even though I'm not hugging them right now downstairs, they know that they're my kids. Right? They have that mental cognition of it. Intellectually, they get it. But in those moments, they get to experience it. When they're hugged and they're held and they're embraced, they get to experience their sonship or daughterhood. They aren't just hired hands. They aren't even just friends of the family. They're mine and they're loved completely. Because of the resurrection, God is inviting and calling you to experience your sonship like that, even now. This is your daily bread. It's his presence. It's his word. It's his family. If you want to know, by the way, what the hug of the king of glory feels like, be hugged by the church. The church is his body upon the earth. If you want to know what his voice sounds like, listen to the encouragements of your covenant family. We are the body of Christ upon the earth. This is the power of the resurrection. Let's pray.